This is Guns and Butter. Now let's look at this compromise. This was the deed done in the dead of night at about uh, a little bit before midnight on Friday night last week that um, Obama negotiated this with Congressman Boehner, right, the Speaker of the House, and with Harry Reid of the uh, Senate Democratic majority. But the interesting thing is the the only group of people that, that really have any different view were completely excluded, and this were the House Democrats. And Congresswoman Pelosi, now deprived of all power, was not even part of the talk. She was nowhere. She was a non-person. And she then came out and said, I, I have no stake in this. I don't own it. And she voted against it. But let's just see what this is. Um, it is a cut of $80 billion. You notice that after this happened, Obama went on television with the Washington Monument behind him and the Lincoln Memorial saying, these are both going to be open tomorrow. Right? They won't be shut down. And I have carried out the biggest single budget cut in U.S. history. And he boasted of this. So this is now a credential for a Democratic president. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Austerity Psychosis Grips Washington, D.C. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss Obama's budget speech at George Washington University of April 13, 2011 the Fiscal 2011 Budget Resolution, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, Paul Ryan's Budget Resolution for the year 2012, Medicare and Medicaid, Derivatives and the Price of Oil. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. What is your assessment of Obama's budget speech at George Washington University that he gave on April 13th? I think it is a, a tragic uh, moment. It's full of ominous uh, portent. It, it is really a, a final sign that the tremendous potential of the moment of 2008 has now been completely destroyed and aborted by Obama. Those are moments that come along once every 60 to 70 years, right? It was something like the Roosevelt 100 Days might have been possible with a different cast of characters, starting with a different president and a different Congress. But the potential was certainly there. And if that had been done, the Republican Party could have been almost completely destroyed, except as a regional expression of certain racist or oligarchical social views in the Deep South. But that was not done. So we have this huge resurgence of the reactionaries precisely because of Obama's uh, methods, uh, in other words, using kind of left cover, I guess you'd say still, 
but to cover a, a complete Wall Street program, to act as a, as a wholly owned asset of, of Wall Street. Now, if you were listening to this um, speech, you could hear the troubles began very early on when he began to talk about um, rugged individualism. Well, rugged individualism was the campaign slogan of Herbert Hoover in 1932. And then he got to self-reliance, which is Ralph Waldo Emerson, not exactly uh, the best uh, guide under any circumstances. The, the, the real big mistake or the, the crime, the betrayal of Obama, really, is that he accepts now the idea that political debate has to center on budget cutting, deficits, debt, and this lugubrious apparatus of the reactionary Republicans. He, he has accepted their world of, of, of thought, right? Their, their, their whole way of posing these problems. If you remember back in the election campaign, both parties were parroting jobs, 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 but now there is no talk of jobs. And rather what it is, is the, the way in which the middle class will be gouged and destroyed. Um, and I think you, could, you can see this in, in um, Obama's speech. Now, the, the, the speech was meant to reassure his followers, who are now by now very, very worried, that he was not going to repeat his outright betrayal of December 7th, with the Bush tax cuts being prolonged, and also this surreptitious attack on Social Security by lowering the payroll tax for one year or two years, which is a, that is a, a very material weakening of the future of social security. They were afraid that he would capitulate right away to the Ryan budget. So he had to put up a demagogic smokescreen that he was not going to do that. Um, so some of them were, were duped. Uh, I have to add, Obama's followers really want to be duped. So he, he duped quite a few of them. But I think at the, in the middle of this thing, there were a couple of things that you can, uh, you can point out in, in the speech. Uh, one is he says that there's going to be a trigger mechanism, a fail-safe trigger mechanism in the year 2014, meaning that if all of his uh, mechanisms that he puts in place for austerity, for cuts, for gouging the American people, attacking the middle class under left cover. If that has not produced sufficient cuts in the deficit, then there will be this moment when it sounds like something like rescissions across the board budget cuts might be forced onto Congress. The, the mechanism of this is not clear, and I'm sure we're not being told the whole truth about what he has in mind. But if you remember the Graham-Rudman-Hollings Act of the 1980s, that was the planned train wreck with rescissions, with automatic across-the-board budget cuts of equal percentages in everything if the, if the deficits were, were still growing. And of course, they fudged it for quite a few years with Graham-Rudman-Hollings. But with Obama, he's basically saying 2014 is going to be the moment when the fail-safe trigger comes into play. Some have already said, Obama-Geddon, Obama-Geddon 2014. If the world doesn't end in 2012, according to the Aztec calendar, then it's going to be in 2014. So this is very ominous. And his entire approach is this notion, I, I would really call it something like budget bonapartism, in the sense that 
you're finding mechanisms that take the spending power out of the hands of Congress and put it somewhere else. And I'd like to see the details on this trigger plan. Uh, the other one that I think is very, very scary is that he, he basically talks about Medicare. Remember, he already gouged $500 billion, one half trillion was gouged out of Medicare as part of his uh, Obamacare bill of a year ago. And now he wants almost the same amount to be gouged out over the coming years. So another $480 billion, call it $500 billion. So $1 trillion of Medicare cuts. And how will this be managed? He talks now about his own creation, his baby, which is the Independent Payment Advisory Board. And I'm really sorry. I don't want to offend anybody, but that's a death panel. There's just no way around it. Medicare has rationing boards, uh, healthcare rationing. And the effect of these rationing boards is that they condemn people not to get treatment under certain circumstances. If the bureaucrats decide that you're too old or too sick or your life is not worth living, then that's the end of you. One is IMAC, uh, Independent Medical Advisory Council, I think is one. There's another one called MedPAC. Medicare Permanent Advisory Committee, that's another one. Obama's new bill created the Independent Payment Advisory Board, IPAB. Uh, and that's the one that he talks about. And he says that they are the ones who are going to make binding decisions in terms of rationing of care. And the Congress will not be involved unless the Congress chooses to override those decisions, in which case maybe a supermajority would be necessary for that. So I think that's, that's really, really ominous. Uh, the, the whole mentality now is, is uh, gouging. Um, the, 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 the world of Washington is gripped by austerity psychosis, and I think this is an excellent term. Back in the Weimar Republic, there were a couple of writers. One of them was a guy called Erkelenz, uh, not very well known, but he wrote a book about what in German is called Abbauwan, Abbauwan, meaning austerity, lunacy, or austerity psychosis. The, the obsession with deconstructing things that exist, right? That's sort of what it means. Um, we are now in the midst of an austerity psychosis. We have um, austerity ghouls, as I call them, austerity vampires running around everywhere. We have all kinds of competing commissions, and I'll talk about them in just a minute. I think we have to, though, compare Obama's speech, which, of course, is a, 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 a device designed to, uh, to deceive primarily or reassure in some cases, with now the, the dirty compromise that emerged, I guess, what, a day later uh, in the course of that week. And this is now the fiscal uh, year 2011 budget, the year we're now in up, to, up until uh, October 1st. Webster, before uh, I ask you about the fiscal 2011 budget resolution, uh, with regard to this independent payment advisory board that you right. say he mentioned in his uh, George Washington University speech, is this advisory board, does this already exist or is this something that he is proposing? It exists. And it, this is the creation of his Obamacare bill passed about a year ago. There were boards, bureaucrats 
deciding to ration care, to deny care. That's what it means. The IMAC and the MedPAC exist. He added yet another layer, and he wants to give them binding power with no appeal. They will become arbiters of life and death. And, and let me hasten to say, if you want to save money on Medicare, this is not the way. And the most obvious way, you want to save money, you must make massive investments in biomedical research to cure diseases. Um, some people have talked about the, the coming epidemic of Alzheimer's, the dementia of the elderly, that that's a $35 trillion to $40 trillion problem. Well, not if you cure it. So why not attack it from the side of cures? I would, I would personally condemn any approach which is based on the rationing, meaning the denial of existing forms of care, which exist as, as approved protocols, and telling people they can't have them. No, they should always be given access to these. They should be able to choose them, obviously. They don't have to have them, but many, of I think, are, are going to choose them. Uh, and if, if those don't work, then, then probably that's all we can do. But every effort should be made for every individual human life. The, essentially, the debate we have now is the Republicans want to kill you, uh, Ryan. They want to kill you through the anonymous method of the market. In other words, the Ryan plan, in particular what he has for Medicare, is that you will not be given a program. They'll simply give you a voucher, and the voucher will say, this is good for $5,000 a year or whatever it is, but you've got to give that to a private insurance company. Now, you're 65, you're 70, you're 75, you're sick, you're old. What's going to be the insurance rate for you? It's going to be 10 or 15 or whatever it is, $1,000. And you're sitting there with your little $5,000 voucher. And, and Ryan will say, I didn't do it. It was the market. It was the anonymous mechanism of the market that decided that you shouldn't have care. It's obviously a mystification. The, the older democratic method is to say, we'll have boards of bureaucrats, faceless, unelectable, unaccountable, and unappealable. Bureaucrats tell you, no, your quality of life is no good. Um, that was the, the philosophy of this guy Berwick, which, which uh, Obama was able to impose for a while as the head of Medicare. Berwick got a recess appointment, and he, I think he was in there for about a year but it was found in the, in the spring of this year that there was no chance of getting him through the Senate. So I think he's out, although you never know. Uh, he may not be there anymore. So one method is the market. One method is the bureaucrat. Now, there's a third method, which Obama talked about in this speech. And this is called integrated care. And integrated care, he claims this is a way to lower the cost of medical care itself. He says, we will get a team of doctors. And we will assign this team of doctors a certain population of patients. We will give the doctors a lump sum in saying, that's the money you have this year to look after these patients. So in other words, we're going to put them in a behavioral economic situation, possibly designed by Cass Sunstein or people like this. And in that behavioral economic situation, the Pavlovian uh, thing to do for these doctors is to deny you care so that they don't go over their fixed quota. So in other words, he's basically saying, I will make the doctors into the gatekeepers and austerity cops of the system. Not the market purely, not the bureaucrat, but a combination of the two. And that is what Obama is now going with. That is how Obama says, I will lower the intrinsic cost of medical care. Well, of course, you can't. Not that way. 
what you can do is find new ways to deny it. Right? You can find new ways to uh, to tamper with the with the patient um, relationship. So we talk about Medicare in this context because this is a it's a big part of the uh, the federal budget, and it's it's going to be a a, a very um, explosive part of this entire debate. Suffice it to say that late last week, the Ryan plan was supported. It was given uh, support by all the Republicans in the House except for four. So all Republicans are now on record saying, we wish to strip elderly Americans over 65 of their economic rights, which somehow we could afford. In 1965, we could afford it, but now we can't afford it anymore. There's never an explanation well, if you could afford it then, why can't you afford it now? Well, because the baby boom generated a bunch of other uh, explanations, none of them very convincing. But the entire Republican Party is now basically a revolver pointed at the heart of everybody over 65. This is what they, uh, what they want. Normally, this would be an open and shut case politically. The problem is, what do you do when the, the other side is led by somebody like Obama who's telling you, basically, I have a way to do it that you won't even notice with my independent payment advisory board, which will deny you care um, by, by essentially ruling out these, these, uh, these technologies. And if that doesn't work, I'll try integrated care. You see what I mean? This is a, this is a terrible um, predicament that we're in. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show... Austerity Psychosis Grips Washington, D.C. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The day after Obama's George Washington University speech saw the passage of the fiscal 2011 budget resolution negotiated by the Congressional Republicans and the White House. The bill cuts domestic social spending by $38.5 billion the largest one-year cut ever enacted by Congress. It's more. Wait, it's more. <laughs> well, yes, let's get, let's get into that. What, what is a budget resolution as opposed to a budget, and what is contained in this bill? Well, everything in Congress has to go through twice, right? Once to be authorized, once to be appropriated. And this is a general framework within which all the other parts are going to fit, right? This, is, this stuff is set up by a post-Watergate law from uh, 1974, or so, which is very dubious in its own right, because it's all geared towards austerity. Um, the idea is essentially that the, that the Republicans have, have um, they've made their position clear with Ryan, but now let's look at this compromise. This was the deed done in the dead of night <laughs> at about uh, a little bit before midnight on Friday night last week that um, Obama negotiated this with Congressman Boehner, right, the Speaker of the House, and with Harry Reid of the uh, Senate Democratic majority. But the interesting thing is the, the only group of people that, that really have any different view were completely excluded, and this were the House Democrats. And Congresswoman Pelosi, now deprived of all power, was not even part of the talk. She was nowhere. She was a non-person. And she then came out and said, I, I have no stake in this. I don't own it. And she voted against it. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about the vote because the vote is very, very interesting in its own right. But let's just see what this is. Um, it is a cut of $80 billion compared to the budget proposed by Obama. In other words, in December, January, 
Obama elaborated a budget for fiscal uh, 2011, the year we're in now. It started last October 1st, goes to September 30th. Um, Obama had, had asked for essentially $80 billion more than what is contained in this wretched deal. And we're only finding out you know, gradually what, what, what monstrosities are in this. So this was agreed under the threat of a government shutdown by the reactionary Republicans. Of course, it's widely understood that a government shutdown by these reactionaries would essentially be a defeat for them. In other words, there's a very good chance that a lot of people would not have gotten their social security checks, would not have gotten their veterans administration's payments. All federal workers would have gotten no checks. All federal contractors, this gets to be like defense contractors, would have been cut off. A lot of them would have gone bankrupt if it had gone beyond a week or two. So um, you could say that, that in a sense, Obama acted with, with calculated cowardice in, in, uh, in backing down on this. And his, his entire negotiating method was to make a series of unilateral compromises. In other words, instead of saying at the beginning, no cuts, increases, right? Because we have a depression. We need more money for, for you know, social programs and a depression. He immediately began cutting and, and essentially got himself to this, to this point. Now, let's look at some of the cuts. There's an economic part, and then there's the policy rider part, which is also uh, quite outrageous. But just you now in terms of the cuts, um, first in the, in the social programs that would have to be defended rather than, than thrown under the bus, as, as Obama was willing uh, to do, we have, for example, uh, WIC, right? Women, infants, children, high-protein meals for expectant mothers and, and nursing mothers and, and, and babies. That's been cut. Um, community health programs have been cut. Um, we have other, other nutritional programs for, for women and children are also uh, cut. Um, we have um, children's health. I don't know if I mentioned that. Children's health programs by themselves have also been uh, cut. So you have a whole series of things like this. Then you get into the area of, of um, what can we say, community support, um, community block grants. These can be used for things like summer jobs for teenagers, things like this. One billion dollars cut out of that. Unbelievable. Um, this is one of the things that makes me say, this is a budget that is very likely to lead to riots. If you remember the Los Angeles riot of 1991 under Bush the Elder, I see this leading to, uh, to riots in, in the summer this year. If not this year, then certainly next year. Highway funding is cut. Now, these are real jobs in real production that are cut out of the highway budget. Um, the fast rail, I think this is in many ways the most tragic um, any, any modern country is going to need a fast rail program, and these are things that, that have to be um, you know, built. So many, many jobs connected with this. $3 billion cut from the high-speed rail on the anniversary, just about, of the French TGV. So the French have been able to go from Paris to Marseille in a couple of hours. They've had fast rail for 30 years. The United States really still does not have fast rail. The Acela train really doesn't uh, qualify. Help for crime victims is cut. Money for state and local police is cut. How about this? $1 billion for the reconstruction and repair of federal buildings, cut. Then we have the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, some of the stuff they do is controversial, 
but some of it is absolutely fundamental, right? You got to keep, you know, mercury and lead out of food, things like this. One point six billion cut from the uh, from the EPA, and so on down the line. So you look at that. That is a um, that's a pretty um, devastating austerity program. I think it comes to about fifteen percent of total non-defense discretionary. And that's an important number I'll get back to in a minute. But then there are policy riders. And since I am here in Washington, I have to tell you, the District of Columbia is in rebellion against Obama as a result of one of the policy riders. And this was that the District of Columbia is no longer allowed to choose to spend its own money raised through local taxes in the district to pay for abortions for poor women. Now, whatever you think the merits of this case, one way or the other, there's supposed to be a budget autonomy for the District of Columbia. And what we hear from the Washington Post is that at a certain moment in these talks, it's Boehner and Obama. And Obama leans over to Boehner and says, John, I will give you D.C. abortion, even though I don't like it. This is outrageous. Uh, On Monday last week, a week ago, The mayor of the District of Columbia, Vince Gray, Vince Gray, the head of the city council, Kwame Brown, and several members of the district council, most of these people are black Democrats, needless to say. They went and got themselves arrested at the Dirksen Senate office building protesting Obama. And the chants were uh, basically that Obama threw the district under the bus. Uh, Hey, Obama, if you don't stand with us, we won't stand with you. Uh, the district is not yours to bargain away, right? Don't use us as a bargaining chip. And this has caused, uh, I think, a very, very deep alienation in, in one of the most you know, important black communities anywhere in the United States. And I think that's, this is pretty much across the board. After the passage of this uh, compromise, Barbara Lee, well-known member of the Black uh, Caucus in the House, says that the fiscal... Uh, 2011 budget is a Tea Party checklist targeting programs that are vulnerable. It's shameful. It's a moral disgrace. Now, this is fine, except now when push comes to shove, where's the primary challenger to Obama? Because it's clear, as as many columnists now in, in, in the D.C. press are saying, Obama believes that the black community in Washington and elsewhere has absolutely no alternative to him that they're locked in to voting for Obama, no matter what he does. And I think this is, this is dangerous. We also had uh, a kind of rebellion among uh, white progressives, uh, the um, PCCC, right? Progressive Communities for Change. Progressive Communities for Community Change. They say if Obama goes on and cuts uh, Medicare and Medicaid, they will not fundraise for him. And many liberal activists who meet here every, every week at the Capitol Hilton they have their, you know, you have the right wing group that meets with Grover Norquist and the tax freaks over at his office, but you have this progressive group. They were originally planning to have a meeting to launch Obama's reelection campaign, which he also announced in the same fateful week. But they decided not to, that the only thing they could do is put out emails trying to pressure Obama to stop selling them out. And this process has now been uh, engaged. You notice that after this happened, Obama went on television with the Washington Monument behind him and the Lincoln Memorial, saying these are both going to be open tomorrow, right? They won't be shut down. And I have carried out 
the biggest single budget cut in U.S. history. And he boasted of this. This is now a credential for a Democratic president. Um, well, he was always a neoliberal. He was always uh, somebody interested in, in following orders from, from Wall Street. Now, th there's also a Congressional Budget Office report that says the savings realized from this are not $40 billion or the $80 billion, which, which is the real figure, but uh, only some three, $350 million. That is baloney. Because what they mean by that is only $350 million spent between now and September 30th is going to be cut. But in the out years, in other words, in fiscal 12, fiscal 13, the thing that they just passed will indeed cut expenditure by $80 billion. And in doing so, it will destroy uh, an estimated 560,000 jobs total. It was estimated when the, when the Tea Party came out and said, we demand $100 billion in cuts. Certain economists came out and said, well, that's about 700,000 jobs destroyed. Now it's only, only $80 billion. So with one-third, well, one-half of one-third of the government, right? One-half of the legislative branch, Boehner and this Koch brigade of, of reactionary Republicans were able to extort 80% of their original lunatic budget demand thanks to the you know, eagerness of Obama to capitulate. So that destroys 560,000 jobs. So whatever the unemployment rate is, it will, it will tick up due to this. So uh, that's essentially the story that, you know, the, 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 the appalled, you know, consternation of left liberals who voted for Obama and believed him, I think is, this is going to take some time to sink in. But I think the idea is now, it's been twice in a row we had the tax cuts for the rich extended. We even had this attack on Social Security through the payroll tax. And now we've got the fiscal 2011 budget, a, sh a shameful moral disgrace, which it seems to me would let us conclude if the Democratic Party is not a totally moribund cadaver of a social institution, there will have to be a primary challenge to Obama. The sooner the better. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Austerity Psychosis Grips Washington, D.C. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, this 2011 uh, budget resolution, this was negotiated by congressional Republicans in the White House. Now, right. what about the Democrats? Didn't 108 Democrats vote no? Yeah, let's 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 look at this. Now, this was this was Pelosi and and the rest of them, as I indicated at the beginning. I would say at this point, if this were a parliamentary government, uh, Obama would have fallen. In other words, this is really the fall of the Obama government if he had been the prime minister, because under that system, he would be essentially out of uh, of office. The roll call vote on this is, um, I think, highly instructive because it's a, it's a moment of inflection. Uh, a majority of House Democrats, a large majority of House Democrats voted against uh, Obama on this. The final vote is 260 for it and 167 against it. So 59 Republicans vote no. That's the hardcore Tea Party fanatic lunatic fringe. But you see, it's substantial. It's 5960 representatives. 81 Democrats vote yes. So they sell out. 
these would be your blue dogs, your moderates, um, or those faithful to Obama. And the really interesting number is 108 Democrats vote no to Obama's uh, proposed budget. 108. Now, in a vote of confidence, he would lose the vote of confidence. He'd be out. So we could say Obama is now governing with a Republican majority. In other words, he's now straddling the Republican, what can we say, the, the less insane Republicans, I guess. Uh, no, it was not the Tea Party, but the rest. And the Blue Dog Democrats. And that's now hope and change. Hope and change is governing with a Republican majority. Uh, it's also interesting that without the Democrats, this could have been voted down. At a key point, Congressman Boehner, right, the Speaker of the House, turns to Steny Hoyer of Maryland and says, Steny, I need, I need uh, 80 votes. And Steny Hoyer delivers 80 votes. So this was passed with Democratic votes. Very important because if you're talking about fighting austerity, which was what any sensible person would want to do, you'd have to say, well, the Democrats are hopelessly compromised because almost half of them voted for it. Although, again, 81 for it, 108 against it. So it is a disaster. In January of 2009, then-President-elect Obama told the Washington Post about cuts that needed to be made. Let's listen to the clip. The real problem with our long-term deficit actually has to do with our entitlement obligations and the fact that historically, uh, if our revenues ranged between 18 and 20 percent of GDP, they're now at 16, it's just not sustainable. So we're going to have to... Um, craft a, uh, what George Stephanopoulos called a grand bargain, and I, I try not to use the word grand in anything that I say, um, <laughs> but, uh, but we're going to have to shape a bargain. This, by the way, is where there are going to be some very difficult choices and issues of sacrifice and responsibility and duty are going to come in uh, because uh, what we have done is kick this can down the road. We're now at the end of the road. And uh, we are not in a position to kick it any further. What's your comment on, on uh, what you just heard? Well, I, I included an extensive discussion of that in my book, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide to the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History. Because what this shows is that Obama is a, an austerity machine pre-programmed by his handlers, by Wall Street, by Geithner, by Bernanke, by Summers, by... Rubin and, and Volcker and the rest of these people. Notice he never talked about gouging Social Security and gouging Medicare or very, very seldom in his election campaign. I mean, you could see that he was a Malthusian. You could see that he was an austerity Democrat, a Wall Street Democrat. That was all obvious. But uh, out of all the verbiage in that campaign, it never got around to the idea that we've got to have really draconian austerity. I would say genocidal austerity. There is no other term. I'll try to explain why in a minute. Uh, against these entitlement programs. Um, he has not been forced to do these things. He has been forced to do them under conditions which maybe he didn't quite predict. But this is what he was programmed to do from the beginning. The, um, the Daily Beast has uh, an unnamed high-level Democratic official posing the obvious problem 
How do we get rid of this guy? He's a disaster. Take a look at the at the article recently in the Daily Beast about this. Uh, and I think that is that is a fairly common view among a significant part of the Democrats on the Hill. Well, how about the rise in oil prices? What is the main cause of the price escalation? Good, good question. Uh, this past week, the uh, the three networks, the three broadcast networks and PBS have all, in their own ways, tried to explain why the gasoline price is going up. And even Obama, in an interview with Stephanopoulos, has conceded that even Obama knows that this is the number one issue uh, for many people, because now it's about, in many areas, it's $4, but in places like Southern California, it's almost $5 and, and so on. Um, you'll remember that in September, August to September 2008, on the eve of the panic in uh, Wall Street, the derivatives bust of that year, you had oil reach $150 a barrel. And then it came down to about 35 dollars a barrel. And at the time, it was very clear what this was. It was not supply. It was not demand. It was speculation. Speculation by Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley in particular, using index futures on the London ICE, Intercontinental Exchange, in a deregulated environment, even worse than the US, is what the British have. And I estimated that at the top of the, at the peak of the crisis, if you were paying $5 a gallon for gas, you were paying 50 cents to Goldman Sachs and 50 cents to Morgan Stanley out of every gallon you bought. So that was a direct subsidy by you to these hedge fund hyenas or zombie bankers, as, as the case may be. Um, and I think that's what you have again now. You notice that when, when the panic came, all of these positions were liquidated. In other words, it came down you know, almost a you know, free fall. And the reason for that is that they had to sell all of these holdings. All those positions had to be liquidated to get cash for zombie banks that needed immediate cash to avoid bankruptcy. So that's what they did. They started selling the, the, the futures that they had been buying long and trying to bid up. They began selling. They began dumping them. So that's why it went down. I don't know what, what better proof you would have of the role of speculation and the fact that it went from 150 to 35 within a couple of months uh, with no, no real change in the world economy. Well, there was some contraction, but not enough to explain that. So now what do we have? What you have now on these programs, right? Every network, they get an expert and they say, well, there are two things. One is supply. The Middle East is in ferment. Libya is cut off. Libya is about, what, 2% of the world market, but it's very high quality specialty oil. So supply is less, demand is greater because the Chinese are now pushing consumer goods to avoid a color revolution. Uh, they want to have consumer goods development, so there's more gasoline needed for China. Now these are, they're true up, up to a point, but they're also irrelevant because the main thing that's going on, everybody knows, is Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are up to their old tricks once again on the London ICE exchange. It is pure speculation using, to be sure, these two arguments, right, using the Libyan argument and the Chinese argument as a means to hype a, uh, you know, a speculative bubble in the oil market. And that's, that's what they're doing. Now, you want to stop them. Here's what you'd need to do. The one thing I've already said, 
The Wall Street sales tax is indeed a 1% tax on all derivatives. That means every index future contract that is bought and sold on any barrel of oil that's eventually going to reach the United States, because that's the, the way the law is um, framed. So it can be London ICE. You're going to have to pay this anyway, because you're talking about a barrel that's going to reach the U.S. It's therefore subjected to the U.S. regulatory regime. You have to you know, work to enforce that. We'll pay a 1% tax. Every index future contract on oil reaching the United States, anytime that contract is bought and sold, that's a 1% tax into the federal treasury. So with that, you've already done something to take the life out of the booze for these speculators. The second thing you want to do is to impose 100% margin requirements, uh, saying if you want to buy a, a future barrel of oil, you've got to come up with 100% of the cash at the beginning. You can also do things like saying you can only buy and sell a derivative if you own it. In other words, if you want to buy a um, some kind of a derivative to hedge, you can only do that if you actually own the oil. And that brings us to the other question. The, the distinction between a hedger, meaning an end user, and the speculator. The hedger is somebody who says, I use oil in my production process, and I have to insulate myself against possible ups and downs in the price during the time I'm manufacturing the oil, therefore I use derivatives. Okay, you're going to pay 1%, and you can do that as long as you're an end user. In order to be a hedger, you're an end user. You're actually going to take delivery of the crude oil. If you come in as a speculator, then a whole different regime of rules apply to you, and they're going to be against you. In other words, um, not to encourage speculation, but to discourage it. And position limits, that nobody is allowed to come in and try to corner the market or get anywhere near cornering the market. In other words, you can't have a relatively restricted market like this and have Citibank or, or J.P. Morgan Chase come in and say, guess what, we're going to buy half of the world's production for next week. No, you can't. There's a position limit that limits you to you know, 5% of the market. So in other words, re-regulation, typical New Deal stuff, all tried and true, nothing uncertain about it, worked before, would work again. All you need is the political will. And I guess at this point, you have to wonder, will the Democratic Party ever do that? Uh, I'm very skeptical. I think you know, the, there is some chance that the Democratic Party might still be alive, but I think from many points of view, it's a moribund institution. So the question is now, what are you going to do about that since the Democratic Party is just not there anymore? You've certainly got to constitute a very aggressive pressure group sort of on the left edge of the Democratic Party demanding this kind of reform. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Austerity Psychosis Grips Washington, D.C. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What do you think about PIMCO, the largest bond fund, dumping U.S. Treasuries? Well, um, this shows the mentality of these neo-feudal finance oligarchs, right? This is Bill Gross who says he is not buying treasuries anymore. It's the, the, the bond, you know, he's the bond king. So he's a bond salesman. That's great. He's a bond salesman who has made out like a bandit in this deregulated market. And now he says he's actually shorting treasuries. Um, again, I would say um, 
you should pay 1%. He's probably using uh, derivatives to do that. And um, if he's using any kind of derivatives, like options or futures, then uh, he should be paying 1%. And maybe that would make him see the light that this is not a good thing to do. Once you get out of the strictly economic realm, you can say, well, you know, that's something like high treason. That's sociopathic behavior. This is exactly the kind of stuff that we should find ways to suppress through, through appropriate legislation. Webster, is there anything you'd like to add? Here's, here's the, um, some things that people should, should bear in mind. In the course of this debate, we hear again and again that the United States is a center-right nation, and it is not. This is a New Deal nation, and the findings are extraordinary uh, and surprised even me because uh, in spite of the Koch propaganda, in spite of the Austrian school, in spite of Milton Friedman and the Chicago boys and all the years and decades of, of um, absolutely stultifying propaganda, the United States has an overwhelming consensus in favor of the New Deal. And the opposition to that comes down to a lunatic fringe of about 20%. Here's the, the Wall Street Journal NBC poll of March. And this is a question about public attitudes towards economic policy. Uh, do you think that cuts in Social Security are acceptable? 77% of Americans say cuts in Social Security are not acceptable. So take that, Ryan. Take that, Obama. Take that, Rivlin. Medicare, 76%, same thing, say cuts in Medicare are not acceptable. It comes to Medicaid. 67% say that cuts in Medicaid are not acceptable. This is this unawareness that Medicaid is not for poor people uh, exclusively, but also allows the middle class to maintain their, uh, their assets. 55% say that cuts in unemployment insurance are not acceptable. That's because of the propaganda that the unemployed are lazy, right? That has cut in there to some extent. I guess everybody imagines that they're going to need Social Security, Medicare, but something that they won't need the unemployment insurance, they will. Who is in favor of cuts to Medicare? 18% want cuts to Medicare, 22% want cuts to Social Security, um, again, that's the lunatic fringe. Um, the question of the millionaire's surtax, in other words, from the point of view of the average person, you can see that they imagine that this is the most effective thing you can do. The, the support for a millionaire's surtax in this poll is greater than any other number generated. 81% of Americans want a surtax on millionaires. And again, I would say make that a Wall Street sales tax and you'll be doing an even better job. 56% say that the main problem is jobs and growth, in spite of the, of the brainwashing. Only 40%, 40% say that the deficit is the main problem. 60% are afraid of excessive budget gouging by the Republican Party. 22% are willing to accept cuts in K-12 education, but the rest are not. So it is, what this essentially means is that the American people repudiate the Washington elites, the Wall Street elites, and the rest of these oligarchs. And that goes for Obama and his 
philosophy of austerity gouging and, of course, the reactionary Republicans on the other side. Part of this may have to do with the fact you've got to remember when you're talking about austerity for the American people, the decline of the standard of living in this country is absolutely guaranteed to be about two-thirds of the living standard available, say, in 1967-68, say, in the last the last year of Lyndon B. Johnson, you have lost two-thirds of your standard of living. Take a look at shadow government statistics. They broadly uh, confirm a finding which is mine. Um, it may even be three-quarters of the living standard that has been lost. So anybody who says that Americans consume too much or that austerity is what they need or that this is even – possible to propose, I think is uh, simply uh, very, very wrong. Um, the, the things that we need to think about are the Economic Bill of Rights of Franklin D. Roosevelt, January 1944, proposed in the State of the Union. And this simply says you have a right to a job, you have a right to an old age pension, you have a right to an education, you have a right to medical care. If you're a farmer, you have a right to a fair price for your crop. If you're a small businessman, you should be protected from monopoly competition, things like Walmart. It's about eight points. I think I've done most of them. But that is essentially the direction we need to go in. But this is not where we're going. The other thing, where are we now in Weimar? This is the, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about, you compare the present situation to the Weimar Republic on the eve of Hitler's seizure of power. The moment that we're just going through with Obama losing his majority seems to me to be the fall of the last democratically elected government, which was the Miller government in May-June of 1930, which was then followed by the Brüning government uh, from 1930 to 1932. And by the time Brüning got finished, you were about six months away from Hitler. You had, you had a von Papen interlude and a von Schleicher interlude, but you were about six months away from Hitler. So we are now at the end of the democratically elected phase, so to speak, in, in Germany. You can see this, right? That Obama says, we're going to assign the Medicare cuts to this commission, which is outside of the Constitution. And it's sort of a, I would call it, again, a Bonapartist entity. It's a dictatorial board that overrides the normal legislative process. You have similar things going on in, in states. Um, with Brüning... You have a form of austerity, which we also have here today. Brüning cut the general budget of Germany by about 20%. And if you look at this deal that we've just had, that cuts the domestic discretionary by something like 15%, if I've been able to figure it correctly. So you're getting into the Brüning area. And the general idea is that when you start with this stuff, in a couple of years, you have destroyed your economy. And maybe not so long after that, you've also destroyed your political system. Now, Bruning was known for deflation, uh, meaning heavy taxation and budget cuts at the same time. And this is the interesting thing. The historical experience from Bruning to Schwarzenegger shows one thing. You cut the budget this year thinking that you're going to save money and reduce your deficit. You will increase the deficit for the following year. These things do not work, even in their own terms. They don't work. They increase the red ink. They don't decrease it. Because in a depression, 
The private sector has collapsed, right, because of a panic, that bubble that burst. Therefore, the government economic activity is the main thing. You start cutting that, you turn wage earners into unemployment recipients or homeless. You know, you generate more foreclosures. You play havoc with the entire economy. Your social costs go up. That is then shunted over onto the, onto the public budget. The deficit gets bigger. Now, I mentioned before, we have a number of Republicans that are already fulfilling the full Bruning profile. That would be Saxby Chambliss of Georgia, the scoundrel who has always got to be there, Coburn of Oklahoma, and a very important example, Governor Snyder of Michigan. This is one of the most sinister figures in the world with Walker of, of um, Wisconsin and Kasich of Ohio and these other people. Don't forget the governor of Michigan, because what he's got is not the anti-tax pledge at all. He's got savage, brutal budget cuts and savage, brutal, regressive taxation on old people, sick people, children, and others. In other words, he's got, he's got a series of regressive taxes that hit precisely the people that you should be protecting. So when you get into this burning territory, you have to ask yourself, if unemployment remains at the real level of 22-23%, how long can democracy last? How long can representative government last? The people in the Weimar Republic who were looking at this said, look, as long as we have deflation, budget cuts, and high unemployment, there are no arguments against Hitler. Uh, Hitler will win every argument because people are desperate. When will we reach that point here? Uh, how fast could it go downhill to that point? And why don't we really do something to, uh, to avoid it? The, the plan that I have at the top of my webpage at tarpley.net in the headline says the goal of this program is to create 30 million productive jobs at union pay scales. Because that's what you need. The real unemployment, the unemployment, underemployment, discouraged workers, people who have given up in despair – I estimate right now in the United States to be about 30 million people. So you got 30 million people, generally quite well educated or at least reasonably educated on a world scale, literate, uh, capable of working, wanting to work in most cases. Look at that resource that you're wasting. And that gets us into the, to the real indictment. What a, a, a commentary on the ruling class of the United States that they divide themselves into the Malthusian group, which is the Democratic Party, and the monetarist group. These are two brands of savagery that are competing. This is what we have. The, the most urgent thing is to somehow dump this ruling class because they have now struck out so many times that uh, it's, it's clear that they'll, they're never going to change. People have got to realize that you cannot – relegate the tasks of governing and policymaking to this, this elite, right? What do you got? You've got Soros. Soros is really the center of it, although he has ultra-left overtones. You've got James Baker III, that's sort of center to right. You've got George Schultz and his people, that's sort of right wing. And then you've got Koch, Mellon Scaife, and these people, extreme right wing or reactionary or proto-fascist, as you might say. Um, that's the ruling elite. And if you're willing to let them make decisions for you, uh, then you're doomed. You're, you're gone because they will come up with, with more and more of these uh, Malthusian or monetarist monstrosities. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. There's something happening here.
I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Austerity Psychosis Grips Washington, D.C. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Release. You dig me?